Friends, as we continue our summer series, the Then Sings My Soul series, I want to remind you once again, as we do each week, of our theme verse. I'll start even the verse earlier that puts it in context. It's a wonderful context. Verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to sing and to make music in our hearts. And I think that's interesting that both of those, the music and the song itself, the words of the music, are included in this passage. Because when you think about it, in modern songs and worship songs, they certainly need and complement and support one another. When I am humming a tune, that's the music. You hum a happy tune, and it makes you happy. You're working, maybe you have a, a work song that you do. Or if you're sad, you're humming a sad song in a minor key. That's a feeling. Music has to do with the feeling. And the music often undergirds the words of the song and complements the feelings. If it doesn't, you notice right away. Perhaps you have very sad words to a song, but if you have very happy music, you say something's not right there. That, that's just wrong. Or vice versa. So we have the feeling, which is the music. And that's important. But we have the meaning which are the lyrics, which are the words. That's the mind and the heart joined together in worship music, psalms and hymns. And as we've been looking at the biblical teaching of some famous hymns and gospel songs of the past, today we're going to come across an author who probably, as far as English worship, has written more hymns and gospel songs than anybody else. Over 8,000 that we know of. It's quite incredible. But today we're going to see in a special way that the meaning and the feeling work together in the hymn that's our theme hymn today in a wonderful way. They're joined together. And they communicate assurance. The feeling of assurance, not only assurance, but today's theme and our hymn communicates the feeling and the thought of blessed assurance. Blessed assurance one of the famous hymns that you still find in many hymn books written by that most prolific of gospel song and hymn writers, Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was born Francis Jane Crosby. She was born all the way back in 1820. And that strange and kind of frightening picture of Fanny Crosby there, that's the most kindly picture of I could find because she always, blind since being, pretty much since birth, she wore those dark tinted glasses which give her that eerie look. But Frances Jane Crosby, she was born in 1820, and at six weeks old, she got an infection. Started out as a cold, but the infection went to her eyes, and a little six-week-old baby, her eyes were greatly inflamed, red, weeping, and swollen shut. The medicine of the day, they resorted to whatever they could to bring down the infection and the swelling. They applied mustard poultices. If you know how harsh those are, they did bring the swelling down, 
But that and some other early quack medicine that they used on her, they blamed that for the ensuing blindness that the little one had. Looking at her later descriptions of her eye condition, she could perceive light and dark. She knew when it was daylight. She knew when it was night. But she had no conception of shapes or anything else. People who look at her case history actually believe that the little baby, Francis Jane Fanny Crosby, was born blind, a congenital condition which may have run in the family, but it was unaware. Many of us don't realize at four, five, six weeks whether the child has good vision or not. They're not really focusing that well to begin with, so she may have been blind since birth. As far as she knew, she was blind for as long as she existed, for as long as she knew. The saddest thing, not only did they realize that little Fanny was blind at six weeks, but her father, her father died when she was six months old, and her mother had to move and go to work. Fanny was born in Brewer, New York, about 50 miles north of New York City, but to find steady work, the little family, mother and daughter and grandmother, moved to the big city of New York a rough part of the city. The mother worked hard. She was domestic servant. She worked as a maid. And so it was left to the mother's mother, her maternal grandmother, to raise the little girl. Now, all the years when she was at home and young, she had to have her education orally. Speak, and she would repeat back. And through that, the little girl developed an incredible memory. Not only that, but the grandmother was a believing woman and she taught little Fanny long passages from the Bible. She would recite not verses, she recite at minimum chapters of the Bible. An incredible memory. And not only that, but as often as the people we've been looking at over the last few weeks who God has given the gift to bring worship songs to the church, she was a poet. By eight years old, she wrote her first poem concerning her loss of eyesight, something that she never grieved losing eyesight because she never experienced it. She had no experience or memory of it. Well, the amazing building you see there, that old Georgian-style building, that's the New York Institution for the Blind. And Fanny went to live there and be educated there shortly before her 15th birthday. That was right in New York City as well, so she wasn't far from her mother and grandmother. She not only became an avid student, one of the best students in the entire school, but after eight years in the school, she became faculty in the school and throughout her life taught at the school on and off in many ways. Of course, what did she teach? She taught music because already at an early age, she began to write hymns so forth. Fanny, though she was gifted with worship songs poetry and writing hymns not just hymns she wrote she wrote one of the some of the first early musicals secular musicals in the united states secular cantatas she wrote patriotic songs during the during the civil war she was of course in the north and supported the freedom of the slaveries and so forth the slaves and so forth but she was uh she was a prolific songwriter but as time went by her true love was to teach God's word and to help people in need as she and her family had been in great need. The next picture shows two important buildings still standing in New York today. The one on the left is the Bowery Mission. That was where young Frances Crosby did her preaching and her teaching because 
The people who were the poorest, the most in need, were the ones closest to her heart. The church on the other side, the 6th Avenue Bible Baptist Church, was her home church. She attended that church, but she'd go across the Manhattan River and she would minister on Manhattan Island in the Bowery, in some of the roughest areas. In the church, she was a deaconess. She was consecrated as a lay preacher. And it sounds so modern, but she was an urban missionary. They, they consecrated her, laid hands on her to be a missionary to the poor parts of New York. And so not only was she writing these amazing hymns by the bushel basket, but she preached at missions and, and places for those who were the very poorest, especially the Bowery Mission. I include by that picture of her home church, her pastor, because that's Robert Lowry, who at the same time was writing hymns. We know Robert Lowry's hymns, hymns like uh, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. What Can Take Away My Sin? Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. His most famous hymn was Shall We Gather at the River? Isn't that amazing that the pastor and one of his deaconesses, they were writing, they were filling hymn books with hymns and gospel songs. Well, Fanny Crosby uh, agreed with her pastor who once said a famous quote of Robert Lowry was that I would rather preach a sermon to an appreciative, attentive congregation than to write a famous hymn. And yet, none of his sermons are recorded or remembered. Only his hymns are remembered. That's kind of humbling for those of us who can't write hymns and just do the sermon side. Fanny felt the same way. In the hymns she wrote, she wrote them as gospel songs to support a sermon, a call to faith in Christ. In fact, it was her stated goal that one million people would come to faith in Jesus at altar calls responding to the call of her hymns. Isn't that amazing? And it wasn't just a pipe dream. You know what she did? She kept a notebook. It's in a museum today. She kept a notebook whenever there were crusades like Dwight Moody's crusades happening, Billy Sundays, who used her hymns and people responded. They would send her that news, and she would record the number of people who responded in faith. She really trusted God for a million souls saved, in part through the hymns she wrote. People once asked her, how do you write these hymns? And she says, well, I always start with prayer, because I believe my poems and my spiritual songs, those, they're not scripture, she says, they're not inspired that way, but certainly my inspiration is from the Holy Spirit. When she was once asked whether she felt that she missed out being blind because she was so famous for that. She spoke on behalf of people with, with visual disabilities and so forth. She once spoke to a joint session of the United States Congress. That's amazing. That's like the, that's like the uh, State of the Union address. In response to that question, she said, quote, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I'd been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. She also once said, When I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. That's amazing. 
She wouldn't, if offered sight, she wouldn't take it because she wanted the first face she'd ever see to be the face of Jesus. That is a powerful, powerful thought. Well, today's hymn, Blessed Assurance, where did that come from? Blessed Assurance. Well, it came once when Fanny was visiting one of her dear friends, a lady named Phoebe Knapp. Phoebe Knapp is super famous, her family in New York City. Her father founded a little company called Metropolitan Life Insurance, the Met. They still are around today. They were incredibly rich. Phoebe lived in her father's mansion. And she was a gifted song composer, hymn writer in the Methodist church and so forth. Fanny would go to visit her. Phoebe would play her latest music and then ask Fanny, what did you think of that? She played the music for this hymn. Fanny Crosby sitting in the parlor by the piano as she played it. She began to recite the words of the first verse. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. The two of them composed the entire hymn in the afternoon. The song which brought assurance and peace and contentment to Fanny Crosby's mind, Phoebe Knapp called it assurance. And so when you look up the hymn tune today, it has the name assurance. The feeling and the meaning of this song go together as few others do. Blessed assurance. As we come now to the meaning behind blessed assurance, especially the biblical imagery of the first verse itself, I want to focus on the assurance that we have, that we celebrate when we sing a song like that. The first is our assurance of salvation. Confidence that we have in the finished work of Christ, of the empty cross and the empty tomb. The confidence that you have. You don't worry, am I saved today? Am I lost tomorrow? You have confidence. You have assurance. We'll read the first verses I do each week. They're very brief. It's not a long song. It begins, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. You get little snippets and glimpses of, of, of scriptural passages and verses throughout that, but in large part, this hymn, which has got always heaven in mind, gives us that assurance through the finished work of Jesus. And the imagery is taken largely from the book of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, just before the great chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, remember Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are under severe persecution. And some of them have asked the question, wouldn't it be easier to not follow Jesus as our Messiah and just go back to being plain old Jews? And the writer says, can never happen. Because our salvation, what Jesus has done, is so much more, so much superior to all that happened in the past to the covenant of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law, the sacrificial system. Jesus, for instance, is the once-for-all sacrifice. Where priests came and went and they were sinful people, Jesus is the perfect high priest who has no sin of his own to atone for. And so in this chapter, Hebrews 10, of comparing old and new, we come 
to the work of Christ, the saving work of our faithful high priest. We find it in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Following on that comparison, the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now remember what they keep in mind, what they're comparing with is the temple that was still standing more, more likely in Jerusalem. And you remember the temple was that great object lesson that you're a sinner and God is holy and you can't come in his presence. There were walls and gates keeping you out that you couldn't pass. And the final one was the great curtain that hung before the Holy of Holies that no one could go into the holy presence of God except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, there was always a question whether the high priest would survive that or whether they have to pull him out with a rope after God struck him dead. That's the kind of image that that temple gave. But we, saved by Jesus and his sacrifice for us, we have access to the throne of God, the very holy of holies. And using that same imagery, for instance, of the vessels in the temple that had to be purified through the sprinkling of sacrificial blood, the author of Hebrews continues, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Jesus, the perfect high priest who through his death his sacrifice for you has opened the way for you into God's presence through faith in Him. And it doesn't depend on the quality or strength of your faith, but on the one in whom your faith is, for He is faithful. He who promised is faithful. The word there, you picked it up, was assurance. It means full confidence. Remember it says, don't be, it said earlier in, in, our, in our theme verse, it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The word for filled is pleroma, up to fullness. The word for assurance takes that word pleroma, and it's called plerothoria, to be full up of confidence. You cannot be more confident when you have assurance through your faith in Christ. There is no level above that. In fact, I don't like to often do it, but the New International Bible Encyclopedia says this about assurance. And for instance, Jesus believes we should have assurance. Whenever Jesus had an important teaching, what did he say? In the old King James, it was, Verily, verily, I say to you. Often translated, Truly, truly, I say to you. In Greek, he's saying, Amen, amen, I say to you. That's the Old Testament word for assurance. He's saying, trust me, have assurance that what I'm saying is true. Truly, truly, you can believe this. You can take it to the bank. And this is what our assurance is in Christ. The New International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, the confidence of faith 
is based not on our works of righteousness, which we have done, as referenced in Titus 3.4, but on the high priesthood and atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Our boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. Assurance is the soul's understanding of its complete freedom from the power of evil and from consequent judgment through the atoning grace of Christ. It is the exact, now get this, it is the exact opposite of self-confidence, being a joyous appropriation and experience of the fullness of Christ, a glad sense of security, freedom, and eternal life in Him. Not self-confidence, just the opposite. Christ-confidence. I have no self-confidence. I know I stumble every day. But I put my faith in the one who can keep me from falling and present me holy and pure before his Father. That security and freedom, that blessed assurance. As wonderful as that is, Jesus himself taught it in John chapter 10, the wonderful chapter of the Good Shepherd. Speaking of his sheep, Jesus said in verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When you're a child of God, put your faith in Christ, you are in Jesus' hands. You are in the Father's hands, and no one can take that away. God is strong. So we have not only a faithful high priest, we have the strong and loving hand of the good shepherd. That gives us assurance. And I love the very end, the doxology. There's some wonderful doxologies that conclude books in the New Testament. And we often overlook the little bitty book right before the book of Revelation. We often overlook the doxology found the last two verses of the book of Jude. Jude only is one chapter, so it's Jude 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Faithful high priest, open the way. Strong hand, of the good shepherd holds you tight and God who is able to keep you from falling he is able remember the old song he is able I know that he is able it's based on that verse he is the God who preserves us we're not the faithful ones he is the faithful one he is the important faith in our saving relationship our assurance of salvation That's what I think of first and foremost when it comes to blessed assurance. But I said this hymn, as brief as it is, is focused on heaven. So we also have assurance of our home in heaven. I love pictures from nature like the picture before you. As beautiful as pictures in nature are, they don't compare to the beauty of heaven. That's a promise of God's word. You cannot conceive, literally, you don't have it in you to imagine the glory 
of heaven that awaits you. We hint at it in songs like Blessed Assurance. The second verse, perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. We just get echoes, whispers of the glory that awaits. Visions of rapture. It's important that she speaks of a vision, a thought, an idea. We have a, a poet in our midst as well. Randy, in his in his writings and his poetry, often references vision, that you can perceive things in the heart and the mind with far more acuity than we can with our eyes. As Fanny Crosby said, I'm thankful that I'm not distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me that would take my eyes off of the Lord and off of heaven. Scripture tells us of those wondrous things that we can't imagine. The familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul also writes to the church in Rome. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Nothing in this life, the good things, the hard things, can compare to the weight of eternal glory that lies ahead. And finally, we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul also writes, For our light and momentary troubles. When he says that, Paul is a man writing from prison. Paul is a man who has been beaten, has been stoned to death, and God brought him back for more work. He has suffered, and yet for the glory that was still ahead, none of this mattered. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what do we do? So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The eyes of the heart that Paul says you should fix on Jesus, your eternal home. Those are the eyes that Fanny Crosby used, the only ones she had. The eyes of her heart, her God-given imagination. And from the words of Scripture which she committed to her memory, in enormous volume, it served as a well constantly flowing up of what lay ahead. Whispers of mercy and whispers of love. It's a precious thing. And you know, I believe that the older we get, the more valuable and precious these thoughts of heaven are. The things of this world no longer hold the attraction for us they once did. We've seen them. We've experienced them, and we know they're always lacking. We know the things of this world cannot feel up the deepest need of the heart. That's only met in experiencing Jesus face to face and going home to be with Him in glory. Fix our eyes on what is unseen. And we finished our thought today with our assurance that we have for all of this that 
our assurance in the love of God. This is all made possible, the glory, the salvation, it's all made possible by God's love, for God so loved the world, the love of God. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. Our life in this world before we go home is one of watching, fixing our eyes on the unseen. It's one of waiting, but it's also one that we can experience the goodness of God and His love every day. Nothing can take that away. Not suffering, not illness, not persecution, not a broken body or a broken heart. The Apostle Paul, again, Romans chapter 8, wonderful chapter, he asked the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or a sword? No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Living in full assurance. When you have assurance, the storms of this life cannot touch you. It's like, I often picture the contentment that comes from having the peace of God. I think of a great storm blowing the branches of the trees, and we've had a lot of those this summer. And way up in one of the trees, you see on one of those branches that it's whipping in the wind, you see a bird's nest that was wide, wisely crafted by a nesting pair of birds. And they built it in such a way that it's enmeshed with the branch and it's hanging on for dear life. And that branch is whipping, but that nest is firm on the branch. And deep in the nest are the little hatchlings huddled together and safe under the spread wings of the mother bird. It's just an image I have in my mind of contentment. No matter what's going on in the world around us, we have blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. We are safe. We are sound. We are content. The Apostle Paul writes about that contentment in Philippians 4, a familiar passage. And I finish with that. And I ask the question, we haven't touched the refrain of the song, this is the, my story, this is my song, and I finish by asking, is this your story today? Do you have assurance? Have you put your faith in Jesus alone? If not, you can. You can have this peace, assurance, and confidence to fullness every day. The Apostle Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Fanny Crosby was an example of that. In those days, the music for a hymn went primarily to the one who wrote 
the music, not the lyrics. They receive the pittance. But when you have your songs and a hundred million printed copies around the world, that's a lot of money. And yet till the end of her life, she was poor. She gave all the royalties to, to rescue missions and to help those that she felt in greater need than herself. Why would she do that? Live in dingy, run-down apartments while visiting friends living in mansions. <laughs> it's because she had blessed assurance. And her eyes were fixed on something far greater. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come together now to sing the words of a familiar old tune, I pray, Father, that the words and sentiment recorded in that song would be ours, that we would sing it not only in worship of you, but as a personal testimony of the unshakable faith we have in our faithful Savior. Lord, you make it all possible. We can't maintain our salvation. We need one who is able to keep us from falling. We can't make it into the holy place, for we have no righteous works of our own. We need a faithful high priest. And, O oh Lord, we are weak, but you are our strong, good shepherd. Thank you for the assurance, Lord, that comes from your word and from our experience of Jesus. May we sing it now, Lord, from hearts that know it to be true. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and sing with us?
pray that you have that blessed assurance, and because of that, you will praise your Savior every day. Uh, you are dismissed, but if you'd like to stick around, I'm going to invite Ken up, and he's just going to give us a quick update on uh, what's going on with our pastoral search. <laughs>